Let's turn in our copy of God's Word to hear just what it is that He has spoken to us as we continue to make our way through the book of Exodus. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20, considering this morning verse 15. Exodus 20. Let's begin reading verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Our Father, we ask this morning that you would be so faithful and so kind to us that you would help us. That you would help us in the strength that you supply by the ministry of your own spirit. That you would help us and so far that as we read your word, we would be able to hear it, that we'd be able to see it by faith, that we'd be able to receive it with hearts of meekness, that we would be able to understand it in such a way that it moves beyond just the mere propositions of truth and the linking of nouns and verbs and into the very living and active word that it is that convicts us, that exhorts us, that encourages us, and that most ultimately reveals to us the glory of the Lord Jesus. Father, we need your help in this. And so we plead and we ask that you would be so kind to aid us and help us this morning by the ministry of your Spirit. Lord, we pray and we ask that you would continue to do the good work that you've begun, and that, Father, in your kindness, you would begin that work this morning if there are any among us who do not know you as the heavenly Father that you are, that we prayed to and sung to, and that we are now receiving the word from. So for your purposes, for your own glory, and for and because of our great need, help us, we pray, for Christ's sake, amen. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. That is an instruction that we hear from the earliest of age. It's a rule, really, that everybody wants enforced. 
but clearly we have a problem with actually keeping it. I read that it's estimated that cyber criminals stole some $6.9 billion in 2021. Small businesses lose an estimated $50 billion a year to employee theft. It's a two-way street, though. Recent efforts uncovered that employers had stolen $3 billion from wages owed to their employees. Add to this the rising response of retailers to take this hands-off approach in regards to shoplifting because the liability and the financial cost to actually prosecute are more risk than reward. The frustration that we feel, the eye rolls, even the head shaking that we might be doing right now over such examples taps into something that we all know. Stealing is wrong. Even those who don't read their Bible, even those who don't consider themselves to be Christians, agree and understand that theft is a vice, not a virtue. And you can hear this command upheld and applied and enforced in nearly every daycare, every elementary school, and every corporate HR handbook. It's one of those commands that's widely accepted and pretty straightforward. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. But here's the challenge. What appears fairly black and white right here is quickly and sometimes easily diluted into an off shade of gray as we narrowly apply this command to those blatant examples that we often think of or read in our news feeds. And while we often overlook the finer details of our own individual hearts, of our specific lives, and even the various relationships that we represent in this room. Yeah, everybody agrees that stealing is wrong. But the Eighth Commandment actually goes far beyond just those blatant, obvious examples of physical theft. Because if we align the law of God with our duty towards God as well as to man, meaning love of God, love of neighbor, then we will be helped to see how this particular commandment, the Eighth Commandment, it actually reaches into our hearts and says much about how we think about God's providential care as it does of our supposed love for our neighbor. Yeah, this is the second table of the law that usually is understood as love of neighbor, but we should not think that it's exclusively and only related to our neighbor. How we think about the Eighth Commandment exposes how we think about God and our relationship to those God has created. Here's the big idea for this morning. Most anyone can refuse to take what isn't theirs. But only a Christian can truly honor God in their relationship to their personal possessions. Why could we say that? Well, the Eighth Commandment helps us and points us in that direction to show us not only God's will for our lives, but ultimately what God produces in the hearts of his people. Let's consider this morning the ways that we steal. Let's look underneath that, though, and consider the reasons for which we actually steal. But then lastly, we need to consider that there is great hope 
for our stealing. What are the ways in which we steal? As you just heard that command read, I wonder what came to your mind first. Was it particular objects or ways that you've stolen from others? Did you think primarily, first of all, of possessions that have been stolen from you? Or did you think perhaps of recent examples in history or current events of thievery, robbery, burglary? Now, at face value, this command is pretty obvious. It forbids outright theft and robbery. Shoplifting, pickpocketing, hijacking, burglary, robbery. And typically, that's what we think of first and foremost when we read this eighth command, you shall not steal. And we have numerous examples in Scripture of how God's will for how we treat personal possessions have actually been violated. Rachel stole her father's household idols. Achan stole some of the goods that were to be devoted to destruction in the city of Jericho. Ahab, Jezebel stole Naboth's vineyard. Each one of those are given to us as, as an example of showing us just how God does not like, in fact, God hates that sort of thievery. These are the blatant, commonly understood violations of the Eighth Commandment. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. The Bible also says a lot about inaccurate or unjust weights and measurements. Read through the Proverbs and you see how often that comes to the surface. Now keep in mind the primary way business was conducted in the ancient world would involve scales and measurements weights that you would need to buy and to trade and to sell. And if you wanted to somehow inflate the sales price or deflate the purchase price, you could tinker with the system of weights and measurements, scales. Now, in our day, most, obviously, our business transactions are not carried out with literal weights and scales, but we still find creative ways to accomplish the same end. Think of how this must include any cheating or swindling of others that appear to be legitimate. How many times have you heard where somebody gets taken captive into something that is not at all what it promised? From the explicit email promising you great rewards if you'll invest in this so-and-so or this particular prince or this particular authority, and you find out somebody was taken captive by deceit and their money was stolen. We think also of things that we can be influenced to purchase, to invest in. From this command, we must also think of insurance fraud, plagiarism, tax evasion, all the various ways and expressions of unjustly crippling our neighbor, taking what is not ours. Think of the accounting schemes that have been cooked up to deceive stockholders. Think of the embellishments and the taking advantage of the poor or those seeking loans and the way that those loans are crafted and created so that the lender wins and the one taking the money loses. When we think about stealing, we need to also include the sort of promotion or selling or distributing of defective goods and services that we can entice people to buy but actually isn't something that's good for them. 
Now, I think discernment is most certainly needed in our economy that upholds the principles of capitalism and, and free markets. But this economic liberty that we have also provides opportunity for taking advantage of others, and we need to be careful to not wrap thievery in a cloak of capitalism. It's certainly not wrong to market a product or to make a profit. But if we work in advertising or sales or marketing, a wise question to stop and ask is, am I creating a desire for something that's unhelpful or even destructive? To be fair, we need to think also of other examples in a socialist or a communist environment where thievery is most certainly carried out from by governments stealing from their citizens under the guise of care or equality. Government leaders who have been given a measure of authority by God must rule and legislate with an eye towards God's good design. You shall not steal. But historically, Christians have aimed to read and apply this command by not only thinking about what it forbids. We could probably get very creative and think of all sorts of ways that we could apply this eighth commandment to what it forbids. But if we want to deal faithfully and kind of walk around the entirety of the commandment as God's design and giving to, giving it to us and what it reveals, we think need to also think of what does this promote? By God saying this is what pleases Him, what is it that we should pursue? That's why we even have in our catechism question 79, what's required in the Eighth Commandment? Well, the Eighth Commandment requires the lawful procuring and furthering of wealth and the outward estate of ourselves and others. The lawful procuring and furthering of earthly goods. So this means that when we read our Eighth Commandment, we should include the sort of motives, thoughts, and actions that protect and provide for the well-being of ourselves and our neighbor. Along with these explicit forms of theft and robbery, God's also concerned with how we think about and relate to our neighbor's possessions. So can you see how this commandment is not simply about rebuking and stealing? We'd be missing so much of the intended purpose and application of this command if we walked away from here this morning just thinking, okay, all I need to do is just not take what's mine. We'd miss so much of what God intends. Because the Eighth Commandment requires more than that. It must also include of thinking of others in the way that I would want to be thought of. Let me say it like this. This looks like someone affirming and working for the laws and virtues and practices that protect and promote my neighbor's well-being. This will be heard when a person says, I want to work faithfully and diligently so that I can help my neighbor when he or she's in need. So what are we saying? This command is not simply a prohibition of miserly greed, but it's a promotion of glad-hearted generosity. As we read the Eighth Commandment, we're to hear of God's 
prohibition of anything that hinders our neighbor's earthly well-being and his approval of doing all that we can to further the wealth and well-being of others. Let's consider what's underneath this, though. What are the reasons in which we actually steal? Keep in mind the usefulness of God's law for us today. For one, it shows us God's will for our lives and it directs us into what pleases him. Never think of God's law as detached from God himself. He gives us his law. He speaks. And so when we hear his law, we're helped insofar as we understand, hey, this is God's will for my life and it shows me how he has created me to live. That's one helpful. But it also helps us to discover the sinful pollutions of our nature and our hearts and lives as we examine ourselves by it. If this is his will, what do I see and hear coming forth from my life? And when we do that, it leads us into this other great use for God's law and that it gives us a clear insight into our need for Christ. This means that when we read the Eighth Commandment, we are helped as we stop and we meditate upon this command and then we consider our ways. And so in this consideration, it's, we must not be content to merely ask, where have I stolen from others? As good and as necessary as that is. But we would be also helped if we would then go further and ask, why have I stolen from others? We're considering really the sin beneath our sin. We can think of examples of stealing in our lives and we stop and we look at that and say, okay, I see that according to God's design, that's stealing. Father, forgive me for that. That is good. But then what if we, before we moved on too quickly, stopped and peeled back that layer and asked, why was that such a temptation? And why did I decide that that was actually worth pursuing? As we plumb the depths of our hearts, finding illumination by the light of Scripture, we're going to find a couple of root sins that feed the surface expressions of our thievery. Eventually, we're going to discover the greed of our own hearts. The reasons we steal, steal, at some point, we're going to have to reckon with the fact that we're greedy. One significant, massive root underneath our theft is our craving for more. And this could be described as envy. could also be expressed in covetousness as well. It's the craving for what we do not have and the love of obtaining it by whatever means possible. And so in our greed, we see what we do not have, and that lack becomes this all-consuming desire and the pursuit of it to gratify our wants. Think about how this works in our lives. Greed corrupts our affections. Bending our love to what we do not have in such a way that we cannot imagine not having this or that. Greed corrupts our thinking as well. 
as we convince ourselves that what we deserve is most certainly this, and how unfair it is, then we do not have that. Greed corrupts not only our affections and our thinking, but greed corrupts our will. As we then choose to take action, wrap our hands around what we feel and we think, and at this point, stealing is just a reasonable and justifiable action according to our minds and hearts and what our wills have become entangled with. And so underneath my examples of stealing, I'm probably going to find examples of greed. Why else, though? What else would we find? Use God's word to dig around in the soil of your heart, and what else do you see as to why am I so convinced that I need to take what isn't mine here? We could probably find a number of things, again, spend the majority of our time here, but we could put a lot of it in one big bucket. Not just greed, but ultimately, unbelief. When we steal, we display our distrust of God's providence. There's no other way around it. All forms of theft are atheistic at their core. Because they shout, can God really provide for me? No, he can't, or he will not, so I must. When we steal, we testify God doesn't care. We assume that what we do not have is therefore what we need, and God has somehow failed to provide what we need. What we need is beyond his provision, it's beyond his notice, it's beyond his goodness, and so we must provide for ourselves. Unbelief is at the root of stealing. Now, certainly the Eighth Commandment has much to do with love for our neighbor, but don't think for a moment in saying that its primary expression in love for neighbor has nothing to do with love for God. We violate the eighth commandment because, friends, we failed to hear and to believe the first commandment. How did God begin all of this? In fact, what was the introduction to these ten words? Look back at verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you see the deep roots of unbelief that are underneath our willingness to steal? Because every time we scheme and plot to lay hold of what isn't ours, we're essentially saying, God may be sufficient to redeem from the bondage of sin, but he's insufficient to provide what I need or want right here. Now, we're not saying that with our mouths as we put our hands around what we think we need. But friends, most certainly the motive of our heart is testifying to that reality. Through our stealing, we're testifying that God is not good or that he's not gracious or that he's not great enough to provide it. But each of these options, whichever one you want to pick, are ultimately an expression of unbelief, that God is not, and therefore I must. 
So given how God has given us his law to show us his will for our lives, to show us the remaining corruption of our own hearts, it does so without hesitation and with perfect precision. God, by his spirit, uses his revealed will to show us our need. But this revelation, friends, is not a diagnosis without hope. Yes, there are a variety of ways that we can break this eighth commandment. And there are several really damning reasons for why we would choose to do so. But the reality of our breaking and the damnation that we feel is not the end of the story. Because even in this, what we find in God's word is that there is great hope for our thievery. As we hear the law of God alongside the New Testament, we find great hope in the examples of God's people actually being transformed. Friend, read your Bible and see that there is great hope for miserly, thieving hearts. Consider first just the hope of Christian living. Look at the examples of what the Bible gives to us of God's people. Friend, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I would encourage you to listen to God's word as to what it says about God's people, that they are not perfect, but the work that God does in them to perfect them to become like Christ. And when God gathers a people to himself, what's different about those people than maybe the experiences that you've encountered in your workplace or family? or in your neighborhood. Consider the hope of Christian living. Instead of business relationships or neighbors and even friends using people for selfish gain, the Bible shows us a community of people who are transformed by God to now work in order to provide for others, freely giving and sharing. I'm thinking of the description in Acts chapter 2 where we hear that they, these Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, why is Luke telling this? Well, he's wanting us to see that it wasn't the government. It wasn't some heavy-handed leadership that was forcing them to share. Like some daycare instructor that's prying this toy out of one toddler's hand in order to give it to the other. See, look at them sharing. That's not at all what's being described here in Acts chapter 2. The example that's being given is to connect us to their identity as believers in Christ. This is who they were. This is what was essential to them as their new identity. And notice what also came with this new community. They were willing to sell what they had to take those proceeds to ensure that others had what they needed. Along with doctrine and fellowship and prayer, this resulted in the sharing of goods. 
why would Paul write to the Ephesians, exhorting them, let the thief no longer steal. Amen, Paul. Eighth commandment. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. But he keeps going. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And what is the hope of the Christian example? What is the hope of Christian living? Is that God does something to his people, more than just behavior modification, but God does something in his people, so that rather than just ceasing to give over to these vices, the virtue that they're actually pursuing is not a negative net zero, but it's actually going further saying, I'm going to work, I'm going to do honest work, I'm going to do honest work to such a degree that I not only meet my needs, but I might have a surplus to share. What is the basis for such living? What's the motive for this New Testament ethic? Are we merely pointing to an example and telling people, hey, be nice and share your toys? That's not at all what the New Testament is aiming at. Now, from the outside, it might look that way. You might read these examples and think like, oh, Christians are just trying to do what we all know we should ought to do. In one regard, yes, because God's law has been written upon our hearts. But in one regard, no, because what we're aiming at is a result of what God has actually done in us. And now we have these new desires and abilities to do his will. The sort of change that's needed is so much greater than forced compliance. Share, I'm going to discipline you. It's greater than a communal ethic. Do what's best for others. And it's ultimately an expression of a new nature that's been formed within a believer. See, the Christians in the book of Acts are described as those who are repenting of sin, those who are trusting in Christ, and dwelt by his spirit, devoted to sound doctrine, and living all of that out in a local church. And so when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he commands that the thief would no longer steal, but labor to provide for others. He does so with a particular context of sinners who were dead in sin, but made alive in Christ. The hope for thieving, selfish people is a new nature that is inherited by virtue of our new birth and our union with Christ. And so, when we read of these examples here in Scripture of Christians sacrificing and providing for and sharing with others, it should fill us with tremendous hope because there is a divinely wrought community that exists not for selfish gain, but for the good of others. And if you are seeking that out, and you're trying to find that somewhere other than God's people, you will eventually be disappointed. If you are craving that, if you are looking for that, by God's design, he has established a community of new creation, where his will is actually being worked out to be experienced by people. We should have tremendous hope when we look to the example of Christian living. And church, what a tremendous opportunity God has given to us to testify of the sort of transformation that he actually brings. We often pray, 
for a corporate witness as a church. We often pray for opportunities for evangelism. One of the ways that we as a church can work to magnify the name of Christ and the reality of his transforming grace is through the generous giving and the sharing of our goods with one another. By God's design, the church is to stand as really this beacon of hope for a world that is warped and wounded by stealing. There is also tremendous hope, not only just in the Christian experience, but the hope of what a Christian actually has. There's great hope for our stealing when we remember that Christians have been given a new mind. Listen to Paul's reasoning in Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When Paul says that we are to look out not only for our own interests, but also the interests of others, we should not misunderstand that as some sort of self-help technique or Mere moralism. His command has everything to do with what a Christian actually has. Do you notice Paul's reasoning in those eight verses? He says, since this is true, your union with Christ, and you have his mind, and this mind looks like this, emptying himself, humbling himself, then live like this. Those who are united to Christ, sharing in the spirit, marked out by affection and sympathy, we think differently. We reason according to different values, according to different purposes, because of what the Christian actually has. We have the mind of Christ. The very example Paul is pointing to is not just some mark on the gym wall saying, see how high you can jump and see if you can do it. Christ did it. He's saying, you have the mind of Christ. Therefore, live in such a way. We see ourselves differently and we see others differently. All this is because we have the mind of Christ, the same mind that willingly took on humanity, humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and became obedient to the point of death. 
Christian, that mind is yours. If you bear the name of Christ, you should see a growing desire in your life to provide for others, to share with others, and to work hard in order to give to others. It may not be anything magnificent by worldly standards, but every Christian is going to have a growing desire to give because of what they have, the mind of Christ. And expressions of this sort of thinking of others before myself and working in order to give away, sometimes it's going to be expressed in very ordinary ways. And those ordinary ways are not less than extraordinary ways because they're expressions of the same reality. Do you have the mind of Christ? Sometimes this is expressed just by a sharing of time. Some of us know how precious time is in all that we have and the responsibilities that are laid upon us. So sometimes just by the giving of our time to one another, considering others more important than ourselves, sometimes it's in the form of just a handwritten card. Somebody took time to think and to say thank you or to exhort or to remind. Sometimes it's in filling the tank of a tank of gas or the gift of a new book or just all these many myriad of ways that we can say, hey, I'm thinking of you. Ordinary ways of which a Christian can say, I have the mind of Christ. God's provided for me. I want to provide for you. There is great hope in what the Christian has. But there's also great hope in what the Christian knows. Though the law exposes the selfish corruptions of our hearts, the Christian is one who has great hope. The Christian is not someone who's magically immune from the allure of greed and the temptation of unbelief that feeds this desire to steal. If you're not a Christian, don't think for a moment that anyone who is a Christian doesn't relate to this. Every person, Christian or not, must recognize this allure. Now, the Christian may feel that being tempted in a way that it's quite often, that they, they find this is daily on their horizon. But the Christian also knows something greater. It's what they know of their Heavenly Father. Think of Christ's teaching in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They 
neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, Solomon, even in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. There is great hope for our thievery because the Christian knows the care of his heavenly Father. It's not that he or she is somehow, again, immune from this anxiety or immune from this fear, which tempts them to greed, to unbelief, and to stealing. But those temptations are are counterbalanced and and even overrun by a much sweeter and a much greater and all-consuming knowledge. My heavenly Father knows what I need, and he will not hold anything good from me, and he always gives what is best. Essentially, when we read and we see and we're enabled to know the true goodness of God, the brilliance and comfort of the fatherly care, we're transformed. There's hope. So these prospects of stealing, scheming, expressions of unbelief and greed, the way that they seem empty and ultimately foolish is not by staring at them and telling yourself, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. But look to your heavenly father and say, he is good. He provides. He knows what I need. Therefore this? How can I not much more so trust him? And it's in that way that I am freed from this desire to take what is not mine, to provide what I do not have. There is great hope for our greedy, thieving lives because the gospel speaks of so much more than behavior modification. It testifies of this new mind that we have in Christ and this sweet relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. Now, ironically, the Eighth Commandment may be well-known and even widely enforced throughout the world. But the true application of this command and the truths opened up to it apply only to a particular few. To those who come to God by faith. To those who see their sin as worthy of judgment. And to those who know God as their heavenly father because of the provision of the son. Do you hear the requirements of this command as God is is laying them open before you this morning? And do you hear of the work of Christ as God graciously provides for sinners, ensuring that we can rest in his labors? Maybe you've already thought of this portion of scriptures. We're meditating upon it this morning. where Paul is speaking to the reality of generosity within the Christian's life. And who ultimately does he point to? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
See, all things were created by him and through him and for him. And yet, King Jesus provides for his people out of his own. Our Lord Jesus deserves honor and glory that's bestowed upon him as the second member of the Godhead. And yet, he empties himself and humbles himself for what? We get a little bit of a clue into this in his prayer. In John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. He works in order that we might receive and experience the very glory that he enjoys to be one with him as he and the Father are one. Out of his provision, he provides for impoverished sinners to know not just material need, but the ultimate need of the soul to know God. That is eternal life, to dwell with him. So who are the most generous and self-sacrificial people on earth? Only those who have first become benefactors of God's gracious provision for them in Christ. So may the Lord continue to give us greater knowledge and experience of his grace for sinners so that we might learn to truly love as he loves. Father, we ask and we pray that you would help us to hear and to receive your law as you have given it to us, that we would rejoice in the hope that we hear for the great need that we see in our own lives. Thank you for the provision of your son. Father, we rejoice to know that it's out of his riches that the depths of our poverty has been overwhelmed and sufficiently supplied for. That how many ways we can look to earthly examples that you provide and how much more so we can have the great confidence that you will provide for us, your people. Lord, would you grow us in our great confidence of your goodness and your graciousness and your greatness as it's displayed most clearly and plainly in the giving of your Son. Father, we pray and we ask that that knowledge would translate into the sort of faith that's worked out into the way that we love and reason and work and apply ourselves in all areas. Lord, we ask that the riches of the grace that we enjoy would continue to bring you glory as we seek to not only respond in thanksgiving, but the way that we respond in generosity. Lord, cause us to reflect your good purposes and work in us for your glory, we pray. Amen.